we know throughout the scriptures, uh, the people of God, the church is uh, called and identified in a number of, of different ways. Uh, we are called a light uh, to the nations, the household of faith, the family of God. We are called a temple for God to make his dwelling and presence known. We're the body of Christ with Christ as the head of the body. Uh, many are the metaphors, many are the ways that we are identified, but inherent in all of the ones I've mentioned is the theme of community. Community. Uh, the church, by definition, is a plurality of people who share a communion, a fellowship together. And uh, we live in a society that has become increasingly fast-paced, uh, on the go, uh, where productivity is increasingly the name of the game. We're in a society that is increasingly mobile. People, young people, growing up and leaving the towns and neighborhoods in which they grew up, breaking up their sense of community. Increasingly transient is our society. And as a result, more and more people are on a search for true, real community where they can know people personally and be known by others. And many are the places that adults and young people will seek for a sense of community. Boys and girls clubs, an athletic organization, something like a Rotary or Sierra Club, or their own town's uh, senior center. But what is it that makes the church, uh, the community of the church, unique? What is it that gives it such tremendous worth? We might identify a number of things, but I want us to zero in on one particular characteristic that is distinctive of the church of Jesus Christ. And I want to draw our attention to Galatians chapter 5 to see that characteristic. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 uh, to 15. Listen now to God's Word. Galatians 5, verse 13. Paul writes this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The main point of this uh, passage here in, in Galatians 5 can be summarized in the simple statement that because the church, because the Christian has been freed in Jesus Christ, they're called to demonstrate love by serving one another. There is freedom in Christ, and that is uh, equates to a, a freedom to love through service. Love is at the heart of this text. Paul says, through love, uh, serve one another. Love, though, can be hard to grasp. It can be hard to define or identify. Uh, I think one of the most alarming passages in all of the Bible are Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We heard these words read earlier in the New Testament scripture reading. There, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 3, where Paul says, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned in sacrifice, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
And one of the reasons these words are so alarming is because of what we have been taught elsewhere from our Lord Jesus in Scripture, in in John 15, where Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus teaches us that one of the ways that we demonstrate love for our enemies and we do good to those who persecute us and we bless those who curse us is that we do what? Freely give of our possessions. Jesus teaches that love may be demonstrated through the offering of one's life or freely giving of our possessions. Yet Paul here in 1 Corinthians 13 is reminding us that one may do this, even lay down their life, and be completely absent of love. I can give away everything, he says. Offer up my body, but have not love. So massive are the implications of these words. They mean that a person could give millions and millions to build a hospital to care for people, but have not love. A person could dedicate their life to ending poverty, but have not love. And this is because love is never defined in the Scripture as only an outward deed. It always involves the condition of the heart of the doer. We think of that popular word, philanthropist. It's made up of of two Greek words, philain or phileo, love, anthropos, man, love of man, love of mankind, so that we might say he or she is a great philanthropist and does much for others. We might be impressed by the outward generosity of another person, but God looks on the intentions of the heart so that without a particular intention or condition of the heart, there is no love. True love, like true faith, is a matter first of the heart. This is part of what was at stake in a central question that came to the surface in the first Great Awakening in the late 1730s and early 1740s here in New England. Revival was appearing to be happening, evidenced in a number of ways. There was interest in the things of faith that was increasing, including among many youth. There was a conviction over sin that was deepening. The countenance of people's faces were brightening. Worship publicly was becoming more lively. And a central characteristic was the conversion of many souls. And so in Northampton, Mass., where Jonathan Edwards was ministering, in a period of six months, 300 souls professed faith in Jesus Christ. All of this was receiving great attention, not only here in New England, but across the Atlantic. And so the question was beginning to surface. Is this spiritual expression that we're hearing about sincere? Is it genuine? And as a result of that question, Edwards set out to apply the Scripture's teaching on what defines genuine faith in sincere love. And the result of that was his work called The Religious Affections. Among the biblical evidences of sincere love and faith, he says this, A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. 
He says, the desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Edwards is saying that true love is not only heartfelt, it's broken hearted. It is a love, I think he's saying, born of God. This is a love that comes from God Himself. It's God-centered. It's in response to God's great love. It's in obedience to God's commands. So it is God-oriented. This is a love the world does not know because it has God in mind. It is to honor and to please Him and to respond to His great love in Christ. And I think this is what Paul is rooting his command here in Galatians regarding love in. The gracious and loving work of God in the hearts of his people. And the word he uses to spell this out is the word freedom. Freedom. You have been freed to love. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. What is this freedom that Paul is talking about? If you've read Galatians or examined Galatians before, you know that central at the heart of this letter is the truth that salvation, justification, is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works of the law. It's summarized well in chapter 2, verse 16. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. That is, the believer has been freed. Freed from the ultimate condemnation of sin, the guilt of sin, from the dominion of sin. He's been freed from death. And we can say he's been freed from himself. From serving self, from promoting self, from advancing self. If you look earlier in chapter 5, verse 1, we see this language of freedom. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The freedom that Paul's speaking about here is not a freedom from obedience. It's a, a freedom from what God's law and our obedience could never accomplish. Redemption. That we could not be justified or redeemed by our obedience to the law. We have been freed from ourselves and our inability to merit the grace and favor of God. But freedom from sin, freedom from ourselves, is only half the equation. Because we've not just been freed from something, we've been freed toward something. When I served as a juvenile jail chaplain for a couple of years uh, during my college years, I learned very quickly that recidivism is a real thing. These teenagers would return again and again to this high uh, detention security uh, center on average uh, 8 to 12 times. They would be released. They would have a, a freedom. But that was not enough. And oftentimes their their home environment, their social structure was unhealthy and broken. But one of the conclusions I drew is that they did not know what to do with their freedom. Where to direct their hearts. 
what to give themselves to. And I think spiritually, that's the very thing Paul is talking about. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. By flesh there, Paul does not mean your physical body, but your sin, yourself, your sin condition. Now notice what happens when you put the command to love and to serve with the first part of the verse. It reads this then, For you were called to freedom. Through love, serve one another. He is saying you were set free from servitude. Now, in love, submit to servitude. You were free from servitude of sin and yourself. Now live in loving service of one another. Paul's giving us important insight into the nature of the Christian faith and redemption and freedom in Christ. That central to it is a commitment and an inclination to serve others, to love others, to invest in others. When Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, he is saying, if you try to do that, you will lose your freedom. You'll go back to that of slavery. As he said in chapter 5, verse 1, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. So the works of the flesh and the way of love and service are not two different ways of living out freedom. If you live after the flesh... You live in slavery. But if you live in love, then you are living in freedom. It appears as a kind of paradox. Because the truly free life is the one bound to serve and give themselves in love to others. And this was the central act of our Lord Jesus Christ, an act in which He offered Himself, even unto death, that others would have life. That's the paradigm uh, for us in our lives. We should ask the question, why is it that a life after the flesh, after sin, is a life of slavery, while the life of love is one that is free? And I think it is because a life after the flesh is motivated out of trying to fill our emptiness. While a life of love is motivated out of a joy and gladness in sharing our fullness, the fullness that we have in Christ. Are we trying to fill our own emptiness? Do we know the blessed fullness of life in Christ and therefore have love to share? Consider some of the practical outworking of of Paul's words. I imagine if you're like me and you hear these words that Paul uh, instructs us in, you hear them in light of your own personality. You might be thinking, I'm more of an introvert. I tend to want to be by myself. Community and fellowship is is hard. Or I'm an extrovert. I, I can't go 30 minutes without being with other people. But the command is not merely to be in the presence of others. It is through Love serve one another. 
that is different. And God's commands are not dependent on the personality of people. The Scriptures never command what God does not supply the grace to carry out. His words also remind us that we as creatures and as Christians are dependent on others. Think about it. If God commands love and He commands service one to another, that means you and I need in our lives to be loved and to be served. Not to serve ourselves, but by serving and loving others, we also are loved and are served. It can be hard to acknowledge our own neediness, our own hurts and pains, our own loneliness. The flesh wants us to be an island to ourselves. But that's not how God has designed the body. He has designed the church in such a way that it would flourish, that we are dependent on one another. As Paul said, God has arranged the members of the body as He chose, for if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. The body parts need each other. And the most important thing the eye needs from the hand or the hand needs from the arm is not function, though that is crucial. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul mentions these different parts of the body. And in part, he's driving home the point about function. But what it needs more than function is affection. Which is probably why 13 comes after 12, which is the great chapter on love. During the winter months, I suspect uh, some of us are heating our homes or at least supplementing them with wood burning, and uh, anyone who builds a fire knows that the success of that fire depends in part on the proximity, however that works, of those pieces of wood to each other. The flame burns greatest when the wood is together, but then a piece falls off. It may burn for a while on its own, but eventually it goes out, at least most of the time. And so it is with us. So it is with us. I'll mention two things needed to love well. One is space. Space in our time. Space in our lives. I would say most importantly, space within the heart. A desire to bless others. I think one of the most remarkable things about reading through the Gospels and and examining the life of our Lord is how He dealt with what appeared so often to be kind of disruptions in His plans and in His day with people. The encounters Jesus had with people were never viewed as inconveniences. Oh, He needed space. There are times we know when He deliberately withdrew from people and withdrew from the crowds to be alone with His Father in prayer. But whether it was the masses clamoring and demanding his attention or the sick wanting his ministry or the lonely woman at the well, he did not see these encounters as inconveniences or disruptions to his calling. These were more the heart of it. 
They were opportunities to serve, to bless, to love, to teach. I remember reading a, a quote from an author from a different culture, I think eastern part of the world, who referred to these watches on our hands as uh, gods, those gods on their wrists. I'm a very time-oriented person. Some of us are. Uh, Structure and time schedule are important. But people, one another, are more important than our schedule. Do we have space? Is there space in our lives, space in our hearts? A desire to love others. The second thing for loving well is to follow in the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ, namely His incarnation. That is to move into the world of another. Christ did not merely love us from a distance. He rolled up His sleeves, moved into our own space with close proximity, even into the mess of our sin and lives. He assumed human nature to walk with us, to feel our pain, to shed tears, to rejoice. That's part of what we love so much about our Lord Jesus Christ. He feels for us. And this is our calling, to mourn with those who mourn, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Think about those words, through love, Paul says, serve one another. The church, the body of Christ, has a number of diverse others. Different in life setting, age, personality, various needs. And we are called to see ourselves as those called to move into the world of others, to bless them, to love them where uh, they are. And then Paul gives us the motivation. He gives a negative one and a positive one in verses 14 and 15. Look at the negative one first in verse 15. If you bite, if you devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. It's no coincidence that this is a description of what wild animals do when they are starving rather than when they're filled. In other words, when our lives are not filled with God, our emptiness may cause us to bite, to eat, to consume others. A life empty of God leads to consuming others. But a life full of God leads to overflowing love. That's the positive motive that Paul gives in verse 14. Through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Quoting from Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What a profound thing. The whole law, he says, is fulfilled in this. That is, at the heart of the law, what God was desiring in the entirety of His law was to have a people so joyous, so satisfied by His abundant grace and mercy that their lives would be filled to overflowing with love. And that only comes through the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you for your great love for us. 
that you poured out yourself a sacrifice to atone for our sins, to regenerate our hearts, that we might know, know newness of life, that we might be filled to overflowing with your grace, that you might cause us to be and to have hearts full of gratitude and thanksgiving. What wondrous love is this, O Lord, that you would give yourself for us. We pray, Lord, that this love would overflow, that we would enjoy serving and blessing and loving one another. We pray, O Lord, that we would see the the high cost, but the glorious calling, being a part of the household of faith. We thank you, O Lord, that you ground us in your mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you be merciful to us as a people, continuing to go before us as the good shepherd who has laid down his life for us, the one who guides us, cares for us, and nourishes us. Lord, may we know your ever-deepening love in our lives. For this we pray uh, through Christ our Lord. Amen.